Good morning, church. Or, as Paul would say, as he does in Romans 1-7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. First service, I got to work on them. They didn't even say that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> For those of you who do not know me, as Mike said, I'm Alex Harth, um, and I am t- entirely blessed to be able to bring you the message today um, from Romans 8 as we continue our journey through Romans and what it looks like to have a dangerous faith. Um, for those of you who are new or visiting, a dangerous faith is a type that is dangerous not toward people, but to the brokenness darkness, death, despair, and sin that crushes so heavily this world in which we reside. For those of you who know me well, you may know my passion for biology and the environmental sciences. For those church family members that did know this, did not know this rather, allow me the brief opportunity to explain to you why. Upon entering high school, I had never met a teacher or an educator that I enjoyed spending the allotted time of an hour with, let alone any time outside of the classroom. Coincidentally, I ended up marrying a teacher, my wife Katie. I suppose I still need schooled every once and again. (laughs) However, my sophomore year, things changed. I met an instructor that I actually enjoyed spending class time with, Um, and her name was Miss Haller. In passing through conversation, she invited me to assist her in grading some of the freshman papers, doing a little bit of the work for her, um, as well as prepping lab materials and getting things ready for things that her biology course students would be doing in the future. Needless to say, I quickly found a love for biology and these environmental sciences and begun to learn quite a bit. Flash forward to my senior year in high school, I elected to take an AP biology course that only four other people decided to take um, in that it was a very challenging course. Wouldn't you know, I passed with excellent marks and I graduated that May with the intent to pursue a bachelor's degree in environmental biology. Watching your head because you see where that got me, preaching a message from up here on a Sunday morning to my loved church family. Although much has changed since those many hours spent in the lab and doing lab work um, and in the outdoors, compiling field guides, taking soil samples, doing all of those wonderful things, my love for the biological and environmental sciences still grows, pun intended. As it turns out, there is a correlation to today's message that is rooted, another pun, (laughs) sciences, and the call for believers to live out this dangerous faith that we have strenuously discussed over the past weeks. Allow me to introduce to you Thelia aconthea, or the common barren caterpillar. This little caterpillar feeds on mango trees and cashew nuts during its larval stage, using remarkable camouflage to hide from predators by seemingly disappearing into the foliage. Once metamorphosized, it transforms into a light brown butterfly, and it is a medium-sized nymphalid butterfly, for that matter, and it is native to India and Southeast Now, for those of you who cannot see it, allow this red circle to indicate where it is. <laughs> Pretty amazing, right? In a 
remarkable case of camouflage, take a moment to identify our next master of disguise. This little reptile is known as Europlatus fascinaceus, or the leaf-tailed gecko. This species of gecko, which is found only in Madagascar, is an arboreal species that relies heavily to camouflage itself in the tropical forests of Madagascar. Other names for it are the eye leaf, uh, the eyelash leaf-tailed gecko, or the fantastic, fantastic leaf-tailed gecko. You may have a hard time distinguishing this creature from the leaves since about all nine centimeters of the gecko, its entire being, looks exactly like a leaf, right down to the grungy, dead-looking tail. Allow this next image to point out our uh, Geico gecko's near cousin. I feel like that little green guy is no longer as cool as this one. So you may be asking yourself, why on earth are we discussing caterpillars and lizards on Sunday morning? While both of these creatures um, are fascinating examples of God's creation and have to do with the message of Romans 8, it's what they share in common that drives the correlation between what Paul is telling the Romans through his letter and a challenge that he issues us the believers and followers of Christ. While both of these creatures spend most of their time camouflaged and seemingly disappear into their environment, they must move, physically move. They must eat, drink, and move from point A to point B to do so. However, this movement is precisely what gives away their state of disguise and makes them uniquely vulnerable to the predators because they are prey. As believers, our faith and motion to share the gospel and the love of Christ should cause our camouflage, the flesh, to dissolve and fall away. We are called to stand out, and we're called to take off the flesh and clothe ourselves in not the world, but the spirit, and for that matter, the spirit of the Lord. However, in doing so, in this to become active, to be seen, and to, to, in a sense, become vulnerable, we're made vulnerable to that brokenness, darkness, despair, and sin that crushes us as well as the world. We must maintain a dangerous faith and live in the spirit of the Lord to combat this detrimental vulnerability. Again, this morning we find continuing our journey through Paul's letter to the Romans. And I would now like to invite Jackie Gagich up. She is going to be um, reading our passage of focus from Romans 8, 1 through 11. Can everybody give Jackie a hand? We've, um, we've been praying diligently for you, and it's such a blessing to have you be able to come up and, and share, and we're thankful for you. So without further ado, Jackie. Good morning. Romans 8, 1 through 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the spirit on the to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Thank you, Jackie. Again, round of applause for Jackie. Good morning. We had Ike Tickner, for those of you who know him in the first service, he came up and shared from the word and I so appreciate people read and I get to listen because it reminds me of movies where someone's reading a letter and you hear the person's voice in the back of your head. So thank you, Jackie. Um, also, just to quickly note, uh, we will be studying out of Romans 8. That's in, on page 944 if you're using the Bibles provided. And also note that there is an error, an error on the uh, bulletin insert for the message if you go to the final section, the third section titled The Spirit Revives, the scripture for that section is Romans 8, 9 through 11, not those verses in Joshua. Um, that's what I get for using a previous insert to make a new one. <laughs> oh. So thank you again, Jackie. Um, today, through Paul's words in the passage, we will explore not only the meaning of this passage and how it relates to our dangerous faith that we've been learning about, but also we're going to take a look at the underlying challenges Paul issues to all believers to take off this said camouflage of the world, this said flesh. Let's assess this passage in three large portions, verses 1 through 4, 5 through 8, and 9 through 11 and observe how Paul weaves his statements together to form a theological narrative that addresses both deep and crucial foundational truths. So the first section begins with verse 1, stating, There is therefore no condemnation. Near the beginning of this verse, in this, this stating of this statement that Paul makes, Paul forges a major relationship between the message that he's communicating to the Romans through the prior seven chapters, but specifically to chapter seven. He employs this phrase, there is therefore no condemnation. Most theological scholars would go all the way to the end of this verse and focus on the term condemnation in the context or the lack thereof. However, the term therefore is mentally highlighted, bolded, underscore, whatever, um, in my mind when it comes to this verse. As most of you know, over the past year and a half, I've spent a large amount of time, as Amanda hinted to earlier, inductively 
studying the Bible. Taking the Bible and the, the words within, not so much as face value, but deeply interpreting them, applying them. What can we truly glean from these passages that, that make the Bible? <clears throat> One of the first sets of things that we're trained to do in this cohort, in this program um, that leads to a degree in biblical studies is to try and identify most all the structural relationships that are at play within Scripture. Paul's inclusion of the term in this verse, therefore, is the sign of a major causation. Causation is the movement from cause to effect. The new life is mentioned, the new life um, is mentioned by Paul in Romans 7 verse 6. And it indicates that as a cause of this new life, the effect is no condemnation. The causation links this passage to what Paul writes in that chapter, and he speaks of the limitations of the law, as Pastor Tim detailed last week, even though the law was holy, as indicated by Romans 7.12, it enlightened people of the reality and the depravity of sin. And therefore, it made them accountable for that sin. Verse 9 tells readers, verse 9 in chapter 7, tells readers that the law failed to make people holy and instead revived a state in a being of sin. Verse 11 takes things a step further by stating that the law allowed sin to deceive and kill, and ultimately, the law was responsible for driving and delivering Paul into captivity under the law of sin. That's verse 23 of Romans 7. However, Paul reverses this gloomy assessment with the assurance that there is no condemnation for those who receive and are in Jesus. You would note um, Romans 5.18 the condemnation of which Paul speaks has to do with the judgment that God will render at the end of time and points us in a direction of a lacking sense of condemnation to eternal life. Verse 2 of this passage employs what some may consider even Exodus language in that just as God promised to deliver his people from Pharaoh in Egypt many, many years ago, he would also deliver those who believe and follow him from the law of sin and death. Simply, the law of the Spirit and the life spent following Jesus yields freedom. That's a huge reality. The law of the Spirit and following closely in a relationship with Jesus yields freedom. And that's the basis for our eternal life spent worshiping him. That freedom is so critical. Originally, since we're on the topic of the law, um, the law was perfect and pleasing to the Lord. Psalms 19, 7 through 8, tells readers that the law was perfect. It revived the soul, made one wise, gave a rejoicing heart, and was pure and enlightening. Paul does, Paul does specify that the law itself did not fail. Rather, our frail flesh and our interpretation and application of that law is what caused the law itself to become polluted. 
it caused, we caused, the law to fall from its perfection. I promise, that's the most I'll say law. I know it was a lot in that brief um, section. Verse 3 of this same section allows two major theological truths to rise to the surface. First, we acknowledge that God sent his son, sacrificial lamb, to absorb the penalty for our sins and paved the way for forgiveness. Second, being born in human likeness and living among us as a sinless man, condemned Jesus condemned sin to the flesh and in beat sin on its own turf. Jesus accomplished simply what the law could never accomplish. He accomplished what we couldn't ever imagine that the law could. And Paul closes this section with verse 4 by asking what appears to be a rhetorical question. How is the just requirement of the law fulfilled in us, his followers? The answer, in my opinion, is twofold. Jesus is the perfect example of the, law, of the fulfillment of the law because he lived a sinless life. And when we choose to follow Christ and attempt to emulate his perfection, we begin a journey that changes the overall trajectory of our lives as believers towards sanctification. We are called again to shed that camouflaging flesh of the world and clothe ourselves in the spirit. We're called to allow the spirit of the Lord to revive in us his great name. God sent his son out of love to be the perfect example of how man ought to pursue the Lord and walk in his favor, not because he had to, but because he could. He chose to. Furthermore, Jesus offers to all those who walk with the Lord salvation and eternal life. Jesus offers this undeserved blessing, again, not because it's what he should have done or what he should do as our Savior, but rather he could do it. So he did. This concludes that first section of study, and Paul quickly moves us into discussing the flesh, in that the flesh is plainly death. The next section begins with verse 5, and Paul is certain to again distinguish the differences between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is deceitful. It's corrosive to the law, and it ultimately is the sole, one of the sole reasons that a wedge is driven between man and God. <clears throat> one cannot be clothed simply in the worldly flesh and in the spirit at the same time. It's simply one or the other. We cannot live a life that is sold out to the flesh and also sold out to following the Lord. Earlier in Romans 5, Paul contrasted Adam, whose trespasses resulted in death for many, and Christ, he compared him to, well, contrasted him from Christ, whose life brought about the abundance of grace and the gifts of righteousness. This is indicated in verse 17 of that chapter. Now Paul offers a similar metaphor. He contrasts the mind that is set on the flesh, which equates to death, and he can contrasts it with the mind that is set on the spirit, which equates to life and peace. 
Paul is talking about two different kinds of people with two different sets of loyalties who lived different kinds of lives. And the result was they moved in very different directions. Paul focuses here not on specific behaviors, but on the mindset that lies behind those particular behaviors. While it is possible for a person whose mind um, is set on the flesh to adopt behaviors that appear to be godly, that appear to be bathed in the Spirit, like attendance, worship, casually floating in and out of church, the fleshly mindset continues to rot away the foundation and under pressure is bound to collapse. Further proof that we cannot have one foot in and one foot out. On the other hand, the mind that is set on the spirit leads to a life and a life of eternal life and peace. To achieve this mindset requires a spiritual transformation. One must be transformed not only by the blood of God, but also the magnitude of the events that happened at the cross. The gospel is what allows believers to maintain a mindset 100% focused on the spirit. And this mindset yields life and peace. Now, I don't know about all of you, but certainly life and peace sounds better than death. The contrast between these mindsets of the flesh and the spirit continue to be contrasted as Paul enters into verse 7. He firmly states that the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God. Hostile. That's quite a term to be used. This section ends with another firm statement um, from Paul that those who are in the flesh cannot please God either. The mind that is set on the flesh understands in some measure that God is calling it to give up the things of the flesh, to submit to the will of God, to acknowledge its dependence on God. However, through verse 8, we, we kind of see that this verse exists to imply that the only way that we can please God is to be in the Spirit. Again, we must shed that camouflaging flesh of the world and clothe ourselves in the Spirit, which enables us to live out a dangerous yet righteous faith. This ushers us in to our last main section, the meat and potatoes, as I would say, as Mike would say, as we discussed earlier, of this whole passage. This is the culmination of all of the information that Paul has bestowed on the Romans in chapter 7, and now as he begins chapter 8. Paul reflects on the truth in verse 9 that in earlier times, God dwelled among his people in places like the tabernacle, the temple. However, now the Spirit dwells within us when we choose to clothe ourselves in the Spirit, when we choose to allow the Spirit to revive us, it is clear that the Spirit of the Lord dwells within us. Paul spoke in general terms in verses 6 through 8 in this section, but now speaks directly to the Christians to whom he is writing. He assures them that they are not in the flesh, but they are in the Spirit. The reason is simple. The Spirit of God dwells within him, within them. Having, 
or failing to have, the Spirit of Christ is a litmus test to determine whether a person is a Christian. I promise, no more biology puns. To close this section in the entire passage of Romans 8, 1 through 11, Paul employs another implicational structural relationship in verse 10, verses 10 and 11. Substantiation, as indicated by these verses, serves to move readers not from the cause to effect like causation, but rather from the effect back to the cause. Simply, sin causes death, and death is a result of sin. Sin causes death, and death is a result of sin. The opposite is also true. Righteousness causes life, and to take matters a step further, eternal life only comes when we clothe ourselves in the Spirit and actively pursue Christ. Again, righteousness causes life, and to take matters a step further, eternal life only comes when we seek to clothe clothe ourselves in the Spirit and maintain an active, intentional relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we allow the Spirit to clothe our entire existence, not only will we then have faith that is dangerous, to the brokenness, despair, sin, darkness, and all of these detrimental items that crush our world. We will also have the Lord dwelling within us and will yield the benefits of freedom and eternal life. What a Savior we serve. Can I give an amen for that? What a Savior we serve. The fact that we can merely be delivered from condemnation, not by anything that we do on our own, but by the fact that our Lord and Savior, that God the Father, sent his one and only Son to come to the earth and die and atone for the sins of mankind. That's awesome truth. And even so, we get to live a life completely sold out to him and in pursuit of him intentionally every day when our alarm clock goes off and we swing our legs across the bed, we plant them on the ground, we move forward with the truth and the love and the life that is yielded from our Savior. That's awesome. And ultimately, here, Paul, like much at many other times, is indicated by his letters that fill the New Testament, the law in the Spirit, the law in the Spirit, um, leads his audience to the cross. In everything that Paul writes, in all of the messages that he delivers to these various groups of people scattered among the Middle East, he is leading them to the cross. So allow me to read this passage one more time so that maybe the truth that saturates the pages and the words found within this passage uh, may empower and encourage us and motivate us not only to move through next week. As Pastor Tim always indicates, Sunday is the beginning. It's a whole new start. So allow this text not just to affect us for the week moving forward, but in the weeks after that and ultimately the rest of our days serving him. 
if you would turn with me back to Romans 8. Life in the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus and from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin to the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things that are of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you, church family, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells within you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. No, sorry. Life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Admittedly, when I read this passage, I see a large triangle. We start this section, Paul starts this section with that critical term and that critical phrase, therefore there is no condemnation. And then imagine going from that point down to each side um, in that when he closes this section, he states in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit will give you life. Into the other side of that triangle, um, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Because of that one term, that one little therefore, we are given abundancy in life and we are allotted the unique opportunity to live and serve the Lord in the spirit. So, church family, are we challenging ourselves daily to remove the corrosive, the camouflaging, the flesh from our entire being? And are we seeking and are we making the intentional choice to clothe ourselves in the Spirit, to follow the Lord, in an effect to become and to live out exactly what we have discussed in this series until this point, a dangerous faith. We want to have a faith that is dangerous not toward people, but to the brokenness, despair, darkness, the death, all of the nasty garbage that fills and crushes this world. We want to be sold out to the Lord through the Spirit. And that's only possible 
because of his son. Let me pray for us this week. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so good. We thank you for an opportunity to be indebted in your service, to show other people your love through us putting on the Spirit and shedding our flesh. We ask that you would accompany us this week in all of our travels to all of our destinations. And Lord, would you anoint the conversations that we have with people and would you perhaps let our faith show them you in everything that we do. Father, I thank you for the unique privilege to be able to speak to my church family and to bring them this message, another indication of how great you are. Father, I thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you're doing, all that you're continuing to do, and how you're causing us to grow in your spirit, and how you're causing us to grow in a relationship with you. You are so good, Lord. Let us not forget that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Subscribe to the podcast now, and for more info, including sermon outlines, visit our website at www.kurtlandchristian.org.